This is WXOJ Northampton, 103.3 FM on the air and live streaming at valleyfreeradio.org. This show airs every Sunday from 11 to 12 noon, same time, same place, and you're listening to Under the Surface, a talk show with a focus on rarely discussed elements of everyday life. I'm your host, Amy Landau, and thanks for joining me. And today I'm very excited because my good friend Kate St. Ives is my guest. Kate and I first met only about four years ago, back in 2012, but it feels like I've known her for so much longer. She's a kindred spirit. We met at a very unusual place in middle Georgia, a place where we'd never been before. It was the place where we went to grad school together to study creative writing. And I found that we, ba- we bonded very quickly because we both love to have long, soulful conversations about our lives and our thoughts and feelings while strolling around Milledgeville, Georgia, which was a very unique place. And we also shared a deep appreciation for nature. So thanks so much for joining me, Kate. It's so great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Good. So um, I've been talking to people a lot about their childhood. So, and I know we've had some discussions before about our childhoods. So I'm familiar with some of your stories, and they're very interesting. But first, I want to ask you, what was your earliest or one of your earliest memories as a kid? Uh, it's funny you should you should ask that because I was actually just telling someone here, someone I recently met about this this memory that. Um, I know it's an early, very early memory because I don't remember quite understanding. I was, I was very, obviously very young. I was small, and I was sitting on a, a porch swing or a glider, and I don't remember. I remember people talking around me, but I remember not being able to quite understand what they were saying. So it may have been, it, it seems to me like it was before I really understood language completely mm-hmm. so, so and this memory um, was a very pleasant memory um, I, I was I was up on a porch I think and I was looking out at a street and uh, people were walking down the street and I think it was probably like spring or summer and um, uh, I saw people you know um, kind of a typical neighborhood street, and I mm-hmm. felt like I was really high up. And I felt like I was really small. My feet weren't touching the ground. I was just on this, this swing going back and forth and on a front porch, some kind of front porch that had a railing and a uh, sort of felt enclosed. And the, I, there was a screen door sort of to my left and behind me, and adults, and one of whom was my mother, would come in and out of the screen door, and they were talking and I sort of was listening to the rhythm of their voices, the sound of their voices and the rhythms and the, the language, but I didn't, didn't really register what they were saying. And it just was a very pleasant memory. And at one point, it, the, sort of the peak of this memory is my mother came out, and I, she had a sort of plate on one of her hands. Did you say and she had it, a plate? It, yeah, a plate. Mm-hmm. And on it, and almost like... Uh, it was flat on her hand, like a waitress would carry a plate out. And she she leaned down to me and, and smiled and said something really, really felt loving and com- comforting. And there were these cookies on the plate that I now know are called apricot crescents. Mm-hmm. And they're um, uh, a really simple cookie. The dough is um, almost a, a sour, a tart dough um, made with um, 
think, sour cream, and there's apricot um, preserves in them. And she took one off the plate, and oh, they're sprinkled with powdered sugar. She took one off the plate, and she said something to me, smiled at me, and I think told me to open my mouth, because I opened my mouth, and she put the cookie into my mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> that's all I remember. And then, uh, you know, just feeling this sense of real um, joy and peace, and then, and that's the last thing. And when I mentioned this for the first time, I I don't remember what it. Oh, I do remember what it was. I was writing in a poetry class. I was asked to write a, a poem. I think about an early memory. This was just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote about that because I I found it weird and interesting that I couldn't. I was obviously too young to quite understand what they were saying. And. I told I mentioned it a few months later to my mother, and she remembered that too. And the reason she remembered it is that for her, it was a traumatic experience. So what happened, just minutes after she, she put the cookie into my mouth, I apparently got off. I, we were at a friend's house, and I got off the, the porch swing, which is what I was on, and started stand, stood behind it and started pushing it back and forth. Mm-hmm. catching it. And she said I was really young, like I wasn't even two years old yet. And I started pushing the swing back and forth, and one time I turned or didn't catch it somehow, and the swing hit me in the face, and I bit through my tongue, like all the way through my tongue. Oh, my goodness. And do you remember <laughs> that part? I don't remember that at all. I don't remember getting off the swing. I wow. don't remember biting through my tongue. It's That's completely gone or locked away somewhere in my mind, but I remember this really sort of you call it, you know, yeah. lovely time on the porch, and <laughs> you know, you know what I, she remembered exactly where we were. She said, "Oh, that was Eve's house. Yes, uh, we were making cookies. You weren't even two years old." And <laughs> wow, you know what I think is interesting about it is, well, first, obviously that that it was you have this good memory, and the bad memory part is completely erased. And then the other fact that that you. You mentioned that you you remember that cookie and so many details about you know opening your mouth and your mother placing the cookie in your mouth, and yet then what was happened what's what was to happen later also had to do with you know your tongue getting getting biting through your tongue, so, which is a painful thing. So you have this like pleasant memory and then the the unpleasant painful memory that has to do with you know your mouth and your tongue being. Uh, erased from your mind. And it's very interesting. Um, it's so amazing that you remember all those details. And I almost wonder if the reason you remember it, you know, even though it's so bucolic, is because of the negative memory that happened like a beat afterwards. Yeah, maybe. And that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, how much this whole memory or the, and the actual experience is focused on my mouth, like the feeling of this cookie being pushed into my mouth and it tasting sweet and, mm-hmm. you know, delicious. And mm-hmm. then yeah, and then apparently I uh, biting through my tongue, and you know there was blood everywhere, and I was screaming, and yeah, wow, yeah. and you don't remember any of that. So it, it seems like, in a way, you know, this other memory sort of protected you, you know, by erasing the the bad memory. It got covered up by just the good memory. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's because it's strange that I remember that, you know, without there having been anything else, and that there was something else because it wasn't like a you know, in a sense, it was what I remember is just a commonplace moment. But yeah. it wasn't commonplace. I wonder if it's sort of a common thing for people who have experienced some kind of trauma. Like, I know it's common for people to forget 
moments of trauma. But I wonder if it's common for people to replace moments of trauma with whatever came before that. So they still have something sharp, like that's just inscribed, like you have this memory embedded into your brain because of the painful memory, but what you actually come away with is the good memory. It's almost like a protective, like a coping strategy yeah. that we're, that maybe it's built into us to have that. Yeah, maybe. It's interesting because I remember we had a, another student in our creative writing program who researched a lot about memory, and we learned about how memory um, is very imperfect, and mm-hmm. a lot of things get altered or, or omitted. So your story kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I love how that you how well you can answer that question because so many people when I ask that question, you know, they'd say, "Oh, I don't really remember," or they just give a very tiny little sort of surface answer. So what's so interesting is that your answer is so in depth, and I guess you must have been really little. Like, do you think you're only like 2 or 3 years old? Yeah, I think I was yeah, around 2, maybe a few months younger than 2. Uh so I think it was before my brother was born, is what my mom said. So that was, yeah. Um, I, I assume everything was okay with you, your injury and, you know, everything healed up okay and you were treated for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because actually a doctor lived next door. A pediatrician happened to live next door and he was home. So I don't know if they, I'm assuming they ultimately took me to a doctor, but they they ran next door with me. That was their first <laughs> response. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess if you're a doctor, you get these, these things brought to you all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now my next question for you is um, just in general, like what were you into as a kid? Or I shouldn't say in general. Like did you have a, any specific hobbies or interests? Yeah. Y- yeah. So when I was a pretty young I don't know if this is so much a hobby, but I think some of my hobbies stemmed from this. But I was really interested in um, imaginative play, and uh, my brother and I, we spent a lot of time together. We, we were homeschooled most of our childhood, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we played a couple, there were a couple games we returned to a lot, and um, uh, one was this, this fantasy game that involved our, ourselves and uh, some dolls, and, but it was really, we were sort of players in it, and we were, um, uh, we took on roles within it, and we called it the Monty Abel, and... You called it what? The Monty Abel, and it was... Uh, Is that one word? Yeah, one word. It was called the Monty Abel, and, uh, you know, my parents were, uh, my mom was a psychologist originally, and my father was a social worker, and for a while they uh, ran group homes, and... Oh. I think there was some uh, some of the themes of this game were rooted in that early experience we had in these, living in these group homes and sort of being part of that life because uh, the Monty Abel sort of was a um, kind of a <laughs> had a, a focus on rehabilitation and you know different um, you know dolls who were oh was that the name of the group home no that oh, was no. Just the name we made up for okay. this, this sort of utopian world we had, but it wasn't okay. entirely a utopian world because we had to work out all kinds of problems and mm-hmm. issues, and um, some of them had to do, um, my brother's, it's funny how we melded our interests, because I I became a writer, and he's he's an engineer, and he's, he's very interested in, in science and mm-hmm. physics, especially, and 
you know, you could see kind of our, our, our interests rooted in this game. I would sort of write the histories. I'd have to write, um, it was kind of a task. You would literally write down the story and then perform it? Well, no, not exactly. So what we would do is, it was, there was this idea that we, that the Montiable and this group that included us and our dolls and different animals that we imagined or, you know, had props sometimes that were stuffed animals, uh, we had to, to, to compile, there was this idea that we had to work on compiling their histories and the history of, of oh, I our think, lives yeah. there. So you created and, histories, backstories for these characters. Right, and sometimes then a problem would come to the head, a head that would connect to a history, and sometimes it was something that was really rooted in some sort of technical problem, like, like um, a boat you know, we had to use to go rescue someone was broken. And then my brother, who had this particular uh, stuffed cat that he that, that he played with a lot that was his, called Bootsy, was kind of this engineer, inventor, <laughs> kind of cranky, cranky character. And he would have to <laughs> come up with a technical solution, and then I'd be busy sort of seeing how this, this particular part of the story connected to another part of our history. And sometimes we would actually, um, <laughs> you know, uh, leave... The present moment, we pretend we were telling the dolls and stuffed animals about history, but then we'd go into this other sort of offshoot game, which would be about history actually in the world. Like, I remember we had a, a game we called Escape, <laughs> Escape Across Siberia or, or Travel Across Siberia, so it would connect to different things we read about the world, and that was sort of like a tributary of this, this wow. same game. But so there was this one thing, we only played that with each other because we always felt like with our friends, it had so many rules and so much history that we couldn't catch them up. So we could only mm, wow. you know, play it by ourselves. But we also really liked... Um, but I just want to, before you get into the next thing, I just wanted to ask, uh, so you, what what did it look like when you played this game? Like, I understand that your brother had the cat, who was the cranky engineer. Were you, what other stuffed animals, were Were there other stuffed animals involved? Or I just want to visualize yeah, but, it a little bit. So sometimes there were dolls and there were... Um, there were there were stuffed animals, and sometimes we'd be sitting in the house and we kind of built a fort, or sometimes we'd be outside and it would just depend, or sometimes we'd have to we'd set like a mission for ourselves, like we need to like when we lived in Florida, uh, which we lived between when I was between the age of four and like eight and a half, we you know we might decide that we needed to cross this field to go get something on the other side, and so that was part of the adventure, and we'd take the dolls and we'd take them or so you'd be outside roaming around kind of with these dolls and characters and sort of describing or telling the story or acting it out with these figures? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of like a mix of that. And sometimes it was just us. Like, if we didn't have them with us, mm-hmm. we would pretend that... And this is the other element that I think my brother um, sort of introduced this to the game, but we also... Everybody, all the dolls and, and us, we were all part cats there was this idea that we all had this other side that was part cat. And that was like our nobler and more agile and more capable side. And my brother loved cats. And we also had... So, wait, um, the characters were all part cat or could become cats? Well, sometimes we brought animals to the sanctuary. Like, we pretended like if something had happened to their habitat, they would move in and it might be like a moose or a... um, I don't know, like a, a giraffe or something, but... Well, what other, do you mean when you say you brought animals? What animal? Like real live animals? 
No, no, no. It's just in our imaginations. We <laughs> oh, pretend that okay. maybe like um, a particular animal had lost its habitat. And so we needed to have them come here to the sanctuary while we helped them figure out where to go. And, and one, oh, that was another one of the issues we'd, we'd, work, we'd struggle with, like how to create a temporary habitat for them in the sanctuary that worked for them. Okay, so you would create this collective shared pretend world and there was you would just be imagining the animals there and talking yeah. and narrating it as it was happening. Even though Exactly. No- and, mm-hmm. and if we had a stuffed animal, we would use the stuffed animal. Like we had a moose stuffed animal and we pretended something had happened to the woodland that he lived in. And so he had to come there. And uh, one of the big focus points of the game was how these different animals learned to cooperate and they had these different skills mm-hmm. and they had these different experiences and how these humans and animals from all these different backgrounds came together and and figured out how to solve problems in their lives at the present moment. So the idea of all these histories is that these individual histories came together at this point and that was sort of a and That's really problem. interesting. So there would be certain conflicts between the different um, creatures, and you would be resolving them, like having the uh, sort of acting out their, or were you sort of talking about how they would work it out? Were you giving them voices? Yeah, we gave them voices, and we also would like sort of go inside their heads, like we'd narrate what they were thinking as we sort of wow went through this. And, and you know, a lot of times the conflicts would come up as a result of some issue all these creatures needed to work on together like fixing the boat that they needed to take down the river to do, I don't know, whatever. And w- what would happen is that a lot of times they thought they got along really well, and then, or they thought that 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 conflict wasn't really an issue, and then they would find out that it was, that they were, you know, different animals, different characters, different people had different ways of doing things, and so they'd have to work together to sort of solve a problem a lot of times. And That's, um, that's really interesting. I'm wondering if... Um, now, when you look back at that, and maybe you even remember some of the storylines, do you feel like there is a parallel between those conflicts and working them out that was going on in, in your actual, your real lives, that maybe this was a way that you were kind of exploring them as kids? I know that's kind of hard to answer, but I was just, it just occurs to me that maybe some of what you were getting, it's almost like with dreams, we get things that happen in our lives and they come out in different forms in terms of our, our dreams. Um, and it's almost like we're working out some of those conflicts in the dream. Yeah, I do think that's true. And what I remember, what stands out most particularly is, um, as we got older and we played this game from about the time I was like four or five, my brother was two years younger till I was about 12 or 13 and then I sort of outgrew it first, and then I guess he kind of followed along. But um, when I when I was about ten or eleven, I remember that our, our our games got a lot less concrete. Like the problems they were, the the creatures we're dealing with were 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 more abstract. And I remember one particular one was about this 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 cat. And some of the animals were just cats. It was like everybody had a little bit of cat in them was the idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love some that. of the animals were completely cat. And it was almost like they were very, you know, they were like these very noble, very complex creatures. And my brother, I think, brought that in because he loved cats. But so there was this one cat who had to, had an, a, a sense of himself 
and then he had to do something courageous, and that sense of himself changed. So his understanding, so it wasn't like he just had to solve the problem, but he also had to reconcile his changing identity. And like, Wow. That, that really does about, seem like fiction writing right there. Yeah, what that meant about who he was, and I remember that at that time, at 10 or 11, things that were important to me or that seemed seemed to be an important part of life sometimes were, were more abstract. And I remember, um, like, it seemed like a really big deal to me at the time, but um, when I was about 10, some kids and some friends from our neighborhood and my brother and I were walking around the neighborhood and we saw these really pretty rocks in someone's um, walkway. And we, you know, we wanted them. We loved, we loved collecting rocks. We loved collecting things from outside and we, they were, they were polished. They were really nice. And so we just took them out of the walkway. We took some of them and put them in a bucket. And when we brought them home, we immediately showed them to the adults who were, I think, sitting on the front porch, my mom and maybe like another neighbor and we're like, look at these rocks we found. And they said, oh, where did you get those? And we told them. And they said, that's stealing. You know, someone bought those rocks. Someone put those rocks, you know, bought those rocks and wanted them mm-hmm. in their walkway. They put them there on purpose. Wow. You, have to, uh-huh. you have to take those back. So we walked back and we dumped the rocks out, except there was this one rock I really, really liked. And it was this bright red. And these had obviously been buffed. You know, they were made to look really... They didn't look that rough. They, they mm-hmm. didn't polish them buffed. And there was this red rock that I really, really liked. And so when the other kids weren't looking, I just put it in my pocket. Like, I, I mm-hmm. couldn't. <laughs> I think every kid has that moment of making their first or maybe only, hopefully, only theft. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then suffers a crisis of conscience afterwards. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right. So I took it home, and I remember, like, wrapping it up in this little piece of wool and, like, putting it in the closet. Like, I didn't even, I felt, it was so overwhelming to me that I was keeping the secret. You know, not that just that I'd taken it, but that I had said, we had said we returned the rocks, and we came back, and everybody just kind of moved on to something else. But I had this still, and I felt very alone, and I had this, put this rock in my closet, and even though I wanted to enjoy it, I would only get it out, like, occasionally to look at it because... It was just too overwhelming, and it began to um, to really eat at me. The this Wait, I couldn't hear the last thing you said. It eat it at you, and then what? Oh, it just began to really have an, a, a negative impact on me. I said eat at me. It began to eat at me. The idea that I had this thing in my closet that I liked, but I couldn't enjoy it because I felt like I was keeping a secret. I felt like I was, right. you know, it made me wonder about myself. Am I doing something wrong? Am mm-hmm. I... My good person who did something wrong, and my bad person. You know, and it's funny because as a, as a little kid, I didn't really, you know, when I we first started the Monte Able, we didn't really, you know, deal with those kind of identity issues or self concept issues. We just, but I, I, what I'm saying is, around that time in the game, we didn't actually play a game about someone who stole a rock. But right, I, I do totally involved. get what you mean. This was going on in your life, and it could have been entering into the play. Right. So then I returned the rock. I remember one day, and it's, it's, I just like went for a walk, and I had the rock in my pocket, and I walked past this person's house and very quickly took it out and put it in their walkway. And I remember feeling like everyone was watching me, even though... Now, <laughs> did you return it to the original walkway or someone else's walkway? No, no. I returned it to the original walkway, mm-hmm. and you know there were thousands of rocks 
in the whole walkway. I mean, yeah. I'm sure no one takes any attention. <laughs> yeah, it probably shows how um, how much awareness you had that you felt such strong guilt uh, over that tiny rock. But I completely yeah. understand, and yeah. I and I think probably maybe at that age you were also developing more, you know, abstract reasoning than you were at a younger age. So it makes sense that it was that it was changing that you were beginning to grasp concepts that were, you know, more abstract and less, you know, concrete. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that was kind of I think how I saw our. What I remember most about seeing our real lives reflected in that that particular game, and so then as we you asked about other hobbies, um, something we we also really liked, we loved dollhouses. We had a dollhouse, and this was something else that was distinct from the Monte Abel game. Like these two realms didn't really really mix, mm-hmm. and we loved building little houses. My brother and I both did because we would have the dollhouse, and sometimes we it was a Victorian dollhouse, but sometimes we'd move it outside. And we'd actually spend hours and hours building, like, other little houses around it, like other structures. And sometimes we used blocks, and sometimes we used rocks and things we found outside, and we wove roofs so that we could create, like, a little village. And we always had to figure out, like, why the dollhouse was bigger. You know, we like, had to what figure out what? We always had to figure out, like, you know, give a rationale for what, justify why the dollhouse was bigger in the town. Oh, bigger, okay. It, you know, bigger and fancier, and we didn't really have the capability to build, um, you know, other, you know, houses that looked like Victorian dollhouses, but we did build other little houses, and we had some little dollhouse people, and sometimes we even made other people, like, we had pocket knives, and we sometimes made other little people, but but part of the reason this, this fixated, we were so fixated on this dollhouse, is because, um, you know, I was born in Cleveland, but I didn't really remember it. We moved when I was pretty young, and my brother was born in Detroit, where the group home was that we lived mm-hmm. in for a while. And my mother would talk about Cleveland, and there was this sense that we were going to go back at some point. We'd moved to Gainesville when I was four, and there was this idea that we were going to go back to Cleveland. And, you know, I got this sense that it was this older city, that it was a bigger city. Gainesville is actually, Gainesville, Florida has actually grown a lot since I lived there, but it's still not the city like Cleveland is. It just just feels very different. It doesn't have the same sort of history and the same type of buildings, the same type of landscape and sort of industrial history. So, you know, we, we believe that, the, that houses like the Stahl House were in Cleveland. And that, so it sort of was like a, a symbol of our, the kind of romance we attached to the city we hadn't been to, but, you know, was was part of our lives. And, you know, that our mother grew up in Cleveland, too. You know, it was something, it was kind of a, you know, it represented this unknown place, but this really interesting place to us. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's why. And we did move back to Cleveland when I was just turning nine. And I, I actually think the dollhouse wasn't as fascinating to us after that because, oh. you know, we did play with it, but it was during that time in Florida, I think, when we had this romance of this place that we played with it a lot. So you mean it was almost like you could have been imagining Cleveland through the dollhouses? Yeah, kind of, and it, just, it was just this idea that there was a city where there were really old buildings, and I know that Cleveland, compared to a lot of cities, isn't, <laughs> you know, isn't a very old city, but, mm-hmm. you know, if you especially look outside this country, but, um, you know, to us it seemed that way, and Florida seemed sort of 
like more, I always imagined it as a kid, and even now when I think about it, I think of it as belonging more to the natural world, that there was this mm-hmm. kind of, you know, grip on it that's also really interesting and mysterious to me, but just felt like it belonged less to the world of, of human beings who, you know, came in and changed the landscape. But there's some part of it that, and maybe that's just, a you know, an illusion, but I think it was partly based on things I, you know, felt while I was there and things I saw and the fact that, you know, it felt like there was this more wild area just outside of town. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but I was very interested in houses, like how people lived and how people built houses. And ah, so it was almost like Florida it. sort of represented the, was sort of the wilderness from your child eye view, and Cleveland was a place where of civilization and more man-made houses and a man-made world. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and it was. Yes, exactly. I think that that it was that 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 more that that world of people and and uh, yeah, and I guess both were really interesting to me. And then another thing, um, another thing we I was really interested in, and my brother was too, is making museums. And we would collect things, and we always felt like we somehow had to make a museum, like we had to present things in a certain way. And that was like our other area of interest, or like those two other games, and then. Like, if we collected some rocks outside or some shells or sticks, we had to, you know, like, oh, we've got to make a museum. We've got to, like, figure out how we're going to, you know, like, present this stuff and <laughs> and learn about it. And we somehow believed, like, we had this idea when we were really little kids that we could make this really great museum that, like, people would want to go to. Like, we'd start with our neighbors, but then we'd, like, actually get people to want to come. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that didn't happen, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you were you were daydreaming already, maybe for, for the future. Well, I think we should take a little break right now and um, just return with a conversation in a, about a minute or a few okay. minutes. Okay. You got to make the morning last Just kicking down the cobblestones Looking for fun and feeling groovy Feeling groovy Hello lamppost, what you knowin' I come to watch your flowers growin' Ain't you got no rhymes for me I got no deeds to do, no promises to keep. I'm dappled and drowsy and ready to sleep. Let the morning time drop all its petals on me. Life, I love you, all is groovy.
Classical Music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andi Musik Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. It makes me feel free. I do it to save money. I feel in charge when I'm doing it. It's a healthy way of life. Why do you bicycle instead of driving a car? It's a good way to fit more exercise into my day. Bicycling is a fun, healthy, economical, and fuel-efficient way to travel. Enjoy the ride. Take your bike. Brought to you by the Franklin Regional Council of Governments and Pioneer Valley Planning Commission with funding provided by the Federal Highway Administration and Massachusetts Executive Office of Transportation. Come visit enjoytheridebybike.com. Okay, so we're back now, and what I'd like to ask you, Kate, is, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I sometimes feel that childhood experiences seem more profound than adult experiences. They just have such an intensity that nothing else seems to compare to that as an adult. So let me first ask you, how do you feel about that? Do you agree with that? Uh, I... I um. I'm not sure if I agree. I, it's something. This is a really interesting question because it's, it's something that initially I would agree with. Yes, and childhood experiences are you know, mine are very important, and I return to them a lot as a writer. Um, you know, both in in memoir style things I write, and even in you know in fiction, I can see that that I'm being fed by you know my material is being fed by some of these experiences. But at the same time, I mean, I've had profound experiences as an adult, and but I think that what stands out to me about childhood experiences is that there's this intensity to them, like you said, that, and I think it might come from being so focused on the moment or so in the moment, so present. Um, a lot of times when I think of memories, or even when I catch myself thinking about what I'm experiencing in a moment as an adult, my mind isn't totally in the present. I'm thinking about something I have to do tomorrow, something that happened yesterday, and I'm, and sometimes something happens that just like that, that blows all that away. Like even as an adult, but maybe or blows it mostly away, but not completely. And as a child, I have I remember having this feeling of being in both in good memories and in not so good memories. This feeling of being completely, completely existing in that moment and completely focused on that moment, both on what I was seeing and uh, around me and on how I felt. And this, this sensory awareness, and I think that that as an adult, at least a change for me, there are you know there are a lot of there's a lot more that I need to be sort of actively responsible for or worrying about, or maybe I worry a lot more than I even need to worry. But it's just this sense that I'm you know I I, I think about the past a lot, I think about the future, and I I don't always accept the present in the way that I think I did as a child. Right. I think you hit the nail on the head with that. It's like, as an adult, our attention is split so many different ways. You know, even before cell phones and technology, just, whereas as, as a child, you really don't have all that history and all these other responsibilities to, to focus on. You're just in the moment, living it, moment to moment. Yeah, and I, I think I've become more aware of that recently because I've been trying to think more about, like, how do I really just accept what the moment is? I mean, in some ways you have to, you know, you have to survive. You have to think about the future. You have to think about these other worries and concerns. But at the same time, I thought, am I, you know, I found myself recently worrying and being anxious about things that, 
you know, I can't control. And I thought, how do I, you know, am I shortchanging myself? Uh, you know, here's my life. It's right now. It's right here. And that made, I think that's why this is on my mind. But I, I definitely remember, you know, the times that I, memories I do have that happened in adulthood that felt most profound. Something had somehow happened to, to, to break my focus on these other concerns, like these things about the future and the past, like somehow something so distracting happened that I just forgot about that temporarily. But as a child, it was easier because, you know, it was easier not to be distracted by this. It didn't have to be something really momentous to, to break me loose from that. that uh, other yeah. that, and, that, and that made every moment then seem, that made even commonplace moments seem more profound, I think. Right. It's kind of like when we were in Milledgeville and we suddenly had to deal with a, did we have a blackout? There was something that happens. I don't know if it was a blackout or... Something where we, we something we relied on. Maybe I think it was a blackout after an ice storm, yeah. and we were talking about how it just changes and you know stops and interrupts everything that you take for granted. So yeah. maybe that's one of those moments where you can wake up a little bit as an adult in a way that you would as a child more naturally. You know that that's interesting what you said about Milledgeville because I, I think we may have talked about this before, but I remember thinking how easy, you know, I was thinking about this coming to Milledgeville, coming to graduate school there, and how new, and it, when I arrived, like, that moment really stands out in memory, those first few days there, and uh, when I met you, and I met other people, and just, like, walking to school the first few days, and I think it's because it was, it was so new that I wasn't really thinking about anything else. That's and right. then, yeah, and then I remember talking about, I remember being on a walk with you, and we were talking about how, uh, how how we stop to stop noticing things? How people as people we stop noticing things or don't notice certain things as much. And I was, and I think I said something like, "It seems like we lose every place we are. Either either we leave or mentally we leave." And I remember this particular route that I noticed uh, that stands out in my memory, like this route that grew up the sidewalk in Milledgeville on that main street that goes through town. What is? I can't remember the Hancock. Was it Hancock? It was the one uh, parallel to Hancock uh, on the other side of the school. Uh, like Wayne Street or something? I don't know. Yeah. But there was a place where these roots grew over the sidewalk, and I remember sort of, like, noticing them when I first walked to school, and then I didn't for a long time, and then right before I left, I sort of, like, tripped on one of those roots, <laughs> and I saw them again, and I thought, that's so weird. It's like these just became commonplace to me, like mm-hmm. all these other things became... <laughs> You know, and I know that, that those roots particularly aren't necessarily that important, but I think, you know, it's like we sort of get used to certain things and then turn off mm-hmm. our awareness of them. Yeah, and I love I, how the roots made you notice them again by tripping you. Yeah, yeah, I know, by tripping them. <laughs> you better pay attention to the roots. Yeah, that's a good And I remember start. feeling sad about leaving, and I thought, you know, as I thought about that moment, how I hadn't noticed those roots, I thought even if I stayed here, it's like I would have lost this town too. Like I would have, I would leave eventually because we change as, as people. We change, and you know, I wouldn't ever go back to that state of mind, as, you know, permanently. Maybe you know, in a moment. But but I, I just think as a child that that heightened awareness, mm-hmm. it was easier to hang on to that. Right, and it's like you know, when I used to work with kids, I remember when I told them my name was Amy, they would say. I have a cousin named Amy, or, you know, something like that. And it was as if the world was so small that just knowing two Amys was amazing. Yeah, 
I know, I know. It feels really special when you're a kid, and the world does feel smaller. It's it feels you know very full and intense and and smaller. And it's yeah, the idea that someone else has your name or someone else you know you know two people with the same name is yeah. incredible. Yeah, so because each of these things are brand new to you, and then much later, you're like, oh, there's of course there's there's going to be millions, billions of Amy's in the world. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So I wanted to ask, did you have you talked a lot about your brother? Um, but I was going to ask if you had any particular friendships that were very important. It sounds like your brother was very important as a child, particularly growing up. Yeah, um, I think that. I would say my friendship with my brother was my most uh, important childhood friendship. Uh, we were close, and we spent a lot of time together because we didn't we didn't go to school during a lot of the years. I started homeschooling when I was eight. And my brother basically was always homeschooled. So, uh, but we did have other friends, um, and I think in some ways. That relationship, because my brother was family and because there was so much, um, you know, so much togetherness, so much intensity, um, you know, it it was definitely a, a really, you know, rewarding relationship, but it was also like a heavier in a way. There was a heaviness that's attached to these relationships, I think, that that are, are really important. Like you said a heaviness to what? A heaviness that I think is attached to really profound relationships. That's that true, kind of, definitely. Yeah, especially relationships with family or ones that are weighted with history and 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 uh, certain bonds and expectations. You know, relationship right. you know, relationship with your parents. But even with my brother, there was that kind of intensity and heaviness. And I had friends that, uh, you know, I could I really enjoyed being with because there there wasn't. It was more lighthearted. Um, even though my brother and I had many lighthearted times, but there was just that... that, that yeah, of course, because he was a family member, so there's a whole different baggage going. There's baggage. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, so, in Florida, there were a few friends I, I played with, and some were in the neighborhood, and some were, were people I people my parents knew had kids, and we visited... And then in Cleveland Heights, when we moved back to Cleveland Heights, we met a lot of, that neighborhood had a lot of kids. And so there were people we could kind of just go out and play with. And some of the kids, you know, and we kind of had, we had friend circles that overlapped, but we also sort of had some of our own friends in. Like I had a a, um, a friend named Abby who lived a few doors down from me, and she was my age, and except that she was two months older than me. She was born in July, and I was born in September. And I remember that she really lorded this over me. I mean, she was still my friend. I still liked her, but it seemed like such a big deal then. She's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm the oldest, and, you know, she, she likes to say, I'm an expert at that. <laughs> Let me do it. I'm an expert. And <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. It was funny because, uh, you know, as a kid, those things seem so significant. Yeah, those age differences, you feel like you're miles apart from somebody, and then when you're an adult, it's like, oh, you're four years older? We're, we're basically the same age. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, those things just don't seem important at all anymore. And I remember, like, the, she was allowed to walk down to the street called Coventry, which is near, not too far from where we lived, and there was a store that sold beads there. And a lot of the girls in my neighborhood at the time loved these beads. Like, they loved making bracelets was a big thing. And um, she was allowed to walk down by herself to buy some beads, and, and I wasn't. And I remember feeling like the, 
you know, they talk about intense experiences, like just the the the, the longing and uh, the, the 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 sort of um, wistfulness. Wistful, yeah, yeah, and pain of this like unfulfilled desire, and I was allowed. Like occasionally, my my mother would take me to this place, and I would get some beads too. But you know, and it's funny because now I wouldn't even, you know, this I can't. It's like I can't believe I was, you know. Well, you were dependent on on uh, adults. Like it, there, we always talk about, oh, how free we were as children, but you're really not that free in a lot of ways normally because your parents are giving guidelines, hopefully, they should be giving you boundaries and sometimes saying no to you, and you really are dependent on them. Right, As an yeah. adult, you so, can have ice cream for dinner every day. <laughs> if you right, it's it. funny, I remember my brother and I would say, when we grow up, uh, and we didn't eat a lot of sugar when we were kids, so when we grow up, we'll, if we're going to each have, like, our own cake. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, <laughs> because, like, never in my adult life have I eaten a cake by myself, like, a whole cake, <laughs> and I thought, it's funny, I don't even want that anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But it's sort of a fantasy you definitely have as a child. Yeah, so there are these feelings of just like, you know, in a way, I think that might be actually what contributes toward that that intensity of those profound childhood memories of these. I think it's partly the, the restrictions and the constraints because the longing, I remember feeling at times intense longing for things I that I had to wait for or that I couldn't. You know, that were, you know, I wanted but I couldn't have. And as an adult, it's like it's much easier to, you know, to get certain, the, the kinds of things that I might have longed for then. But, you know, and the things I can't have now as an adult or can't get are so, are, are so more, there's so much more complexity around them in a way yeah. that it's like, I can't even, that, that kind of longing isn't even as clear or streamlined because right. it, it it's so mysterious in a way. It's like it's even even what I want, knowing what I want, is more of a, a, a mysterious question now than it was, I think, as a kid. Yeah. I remember that waiting on a line was a big deal as a kid. And maybe this, I think this was particularly an experience. You might not have had this because you were homeschooled. There was this competitiveness about being first online. And I always ended up last, or at least I thought I was always last online. And I just felt it was the most humiliating thing to be last uh-huh. online. And it was just horrible. And it just had this profound shadow over me to feel I am the last one online, as if it had this great significance to something much larger, which I guess it must have in my mind. Yeah. Well, I think that ties in uh, for me with the idea that that in some ways, like, everyone notices these kind of things when you're a kid. Like, I remember feeling like, actually, before I started homeschooling, we had some kind of, like, award ceremony at the end of the school year. I think I was, like, in kindergarten or first grade, and I was called up. Like, it was my turn, and I was called up, but then I was actually told, like, I was either came up or was partway there, no, no, actually, that was a mistake. Go sit back down. Your turn is next or something like that. And I remember feeling so humiliated as a kid and so upset and, like, Everyone, like all eyes were on me, and you know, as an adult, it's like I wouldn't even be like a bleep on my radar. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, okay. And yeah. it would, you know, I would never assume that everyone, anyone was watching this or cared or right. you know, like I was practical. <laughs> yeah, I guess because all these experiences are new and figuring out how to be accepted or how you're going to be seen by others. 
and, yeah. and you're just tr- sort of trying to form your self-image. And it, yeah, it's, it's dependent funny, on uh, these small things, but these small things are huge in, in a child's world. It's funny. I, I recently signed up for a community garden plot here in, in Terre Haute, and um, it's, it's in, in Indiana, uh, a smallish town in Indiana. And yeah. um, so uh, we had to, all the, the prospective gardeners had to come for this meeting about the community garden, and um, there was a, a dad there who was getting a garden for him and his two kids, and one kid, the, the boy was about eight, and the little girl was about four or five, and the kids seemed really excited about the garden, and then we went on a tour through the plots, because we were all going to pick our plots, and we walked past, we were sort of near the compost pile, and this sort of bad smell was in the air, but, you know, none of the adults, of course, were saying anything. Mm-hmm. And the little girl was, like, really theatrical about talking about the smell. She's like, ew, that's so disgusting, that smell. And she was really making a big deal about it, but no one, the gardener was talking, and everyone was kind of listening, so no one really said anything to her. You know, that her father, you know, people were trying to be polite and trying to listen. And... She was obviously it, it, what you said about kids trying to fit in and be part of this community and figure out where they where they belong. And finally, she looks sort of uncertain, and she's really quiet a minute. And then she says, "Daddy, do you actually like that smell?" <laughs> 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 you know, it was really funny. It was almost like she was totally willing to forego her initial disgust and like it also. If that wow. was what we were all doing. She was like ready to get with the program if that's a smell you <laughs> like as a gardener. So yeah. how did her father respond? Well, so he whispered something to her, which probably was like, I don't know, like, no, I don't, but we need to be quiet now. I couldn't yeah. hear what he said, but yeah. then she sort of stopped talking about it. But it was yeah. funny how she was, like, really concerned with the social order there and kind of what was, you know, uh, like, first she thinks, okay, we shouldn't like the smell. It's a nasty smell. But wait, nobody's yeah, saying anything. Yeah. Like That's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, and it's so interesting because um, just, you know, when you think about how kids are navigating the world and trying to figure out what adults are thinking and looking for cues from the adult world and uh-huh. not knowing how to read them. So that's that's amazing yeah. that she could have done, a, just switched the program completely and decided it was a good smell if her father I know. <laughs> I mean, just the tone of voice, she was totally ready to drop her her, her first response. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. so. we're, we're sort of running out of time, but this has been such an interesting conversation. I feel like Maybe I'd like to ask you one more question, although it may require a long answer. Well, let me just ask you, what do you miss most about being a kid? That's a, a hard one. Um, you know, I really enjoyed being a, a kid, but I don't think I'd want to go back. Like, it's not like I'd say, oh, I wish I could go back to childhood. I, I don't really want to, but I think I miss the sense of... Uh, maybe infinite possibility. Like, I remember thinking as a kid, you know, when my brother or friends and I, we'd talk about the future, you know, but we really genuinely believed we could, there were a lot of things we could do. You know, we could travel all over, or there were a lot of career options open. There were just different adventures that were waiting, and in a sense, they were. And as, as you get older, even now in my 30s, it's it's kind of like you, you begin to see realistically, there's certain things you're not going to do. Right. You know, even as a kid, there were certain possibilities that weren't really that realistic. But Mm -hmm. the older you get, the older I've gotten, I've noticed, like, okay, 
I won't do this. I'm probably not going <laughs> to have that particular adventure. I may not be a ballerina, whatever it is. Right. And in some ways, I think you learn to be okay with it, isn't it? You do learn to be okay with it generally as adults, an adult, I think. And, you know, the trade-off is you have more, I think, skills to actually do the things you are doing or, or get certain things, but maybe not others. But as a, as a kid, I remember that sense that nothing was set yet. The world was kind of... Yeah. It was like the world was your oyster, and there's no such thing as, like, how could life ever end? It just seemed endless, like, infinite. Right. It, it literally seemed like it couldn't end. And it's funny because that's something I'm writing about now in this essay, um, like, first recognizing that life, you know, as a kid, that, that life does end and how unbelievable it can be. Like, even learning about death as a child, you know, even if, you know, it just seems like even though you see the evidence and hopefully, you know, most kids experience death in a kind of more distant way when they're really young, but, but you know, not all do, but, you know, even if a pet dies or, you know, mm-hmm. you see an animal die, like a bird or something, it's really, really hard to believe that that life has really, really ended, you know, yeah. or, Mm-hmm. Or that there aren't second chances. I remember the kid thinking, you know, there were always second chances, and you know, and I think parents, you know, you, you know, you're encouraged to think that. I think parents will say, well, let's try again, and yes, we'll have, you'll have another true. chance tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But as an adult coming to terms with that, is that sometimes there really, really aren't second chances, and mm-hmm. you know, what are the implications of that? I mean, a lot of times mm-hmm. there aren't. There's yeah. always a lot. There really is a last time. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, and life is finite, and. You have more limited options. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think, that can be an adventure, too, I think, though, as an adult, uh, confronting these limited options and, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe exploring them in a more in-depth way than you might if you're a kid. And, right, because, of course, you know. as a kid, you're, uh, you're in a playful state and the, everything is open because everything is not quite real or... You know, a lot is, right. is, in, is imaginative, is your, in your imagination. Yes, yes, I think, and that, that that's another thing that I remember being sort of enchanted with as a kid, but sometimes frightened by, and but it definitely holds some sort of uh, some sort of interest for me thinking about it kind of as an adult, is how the interior world, the fantasy world, and the real world, that the, those lines weren't fully, you know, clearly drawn, and that there was a sense that mm-hmm. because... You know, I wasn't sure always of what was real or what wasn't. I didn't know as much about the world that, that where the real world ended and mm-hmm. you know what I imagined the world to be began. Yeah. You know, it wasn't always clear. That's a really great point. That uh, blurred line between fantasy and reality. I want to stop here and say you've been listening to Under the Surface. I'm Amy Landau talking to Kate St. Ives. and we're just about out of time. Kate, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. It's been a real pleasure having you here on the show. Thank you, Amy. This was a this was a real joy, and you know, definitely has gotten me thinking more about some of these things. Yeah, so, I really enjoyed how thoughtful you are and how much detail you remember about childhood. broken like the first morning blackbird has spoken like the first bird 
praise for the singing, praise for the morning, praise for the springing, fresh from the world. Sweet the rain's new fall, sunlit from heaven, like the first dew fall on the first breath. Praise for the sweetness of the red garden, sprung in completeness where his feet. Praise for them screaming fresh from. 